Welcome everyone to Moment of Truth. My name is Saurabh Sharma, the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And this is episode two. You know, the first episode that we did, we actually pre-taped it before we even launched the organization uh, with Sagar and Marshall, and we received fantastic feedback about that. And thank you so much for 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 listening and for being so kind. Um, we're recording this today uh, on launch day on February 24th, I think. And uh, and we're really excited to continue this. We're going to be making this a weekly podcast, and and we're going to do it for a long time. We're not gonna we're not gonna you know uh, you know wuss out on this and and stop doing it. So we're really excited for the episode we have today, and we wanted to talk just a little bit more about the organization we've created, American Moment. First of all, AmericanMoment.org is live. Please go take a look at it. Um, there's a there's a founder's letter on there that explains sort of what it is that we're trying to do and how we're going to do it. Um, there is the interest form for Summit, a conference on American statecraft live. That's a conference we're going to do in the early fall with 300 young people under the age of 26. We'd love if you'd join us. Um, the application for the Fellowship for American Statecraft is also live. That's a paid summer fellowship in Washington, D.C. Ten weeks, we pay well, $3,000 a month, trying to get people that first credential they need in order to work in politics. The less likely it is that you would have been able to get a position otherwise, the better. Um, we're looking to help out people who don't have the socioeconomic means to have been able to do an unpaid internship, or maybe didn't even go to college, or maybe they didn't go to a very quote unquote, good college. We don't really buy into any of the credentialing mechanisms that liberals uh, tell us that we have to abide by. And so we're looking for any and all applicants. Um, also, AmCanon is live. That is our dynamic, you know, part streaming service, part intellectual canon that combines the best books, essays, podcasts, YouTube videos, and short pieces, uh, even newsletters and, and Twitter lists that we can find on given issues of public policy. You know, in today's episode, we talk a lot about immigration. We have an entire section devoted on that. You know, everything from, from books like our guest, uh, Ryan Gerdusky's They're Not Listening, to clips. You know, we have a clip of Bernie Sanders back in 2008 uh, talking about why he wasn't going to vote for an amnesty bill on Lou Dobbs' show. It's really an eclectic collection, and we hope you'll enjoy it. And the fourth product is is this podcast, Moment of Truth. So, so we're really excited. It's been a whirlwind of a day getting launched. Um, Nick, how are you feeling about it? I'm so exhausted. Like, <laughs> RIP my calendar. I got up at five this morning to like make final tweaks on the website and all that. And, and you know, now here recording this tonight, uh, I have to say one of the most encouraging things about today is uh, we spent a lot of time planning the the, the fellowship, um, you know, planning how we were going to ask uh, for important information about you, you know, the applicants and, and seeing our website has been live for, for about 12 hours and we've had, uh, about 20 applications already. So, yeah. uh, a lot of information to sift through. Thank you to all of you who have, uh, have applied already. And, and we're really excited to, to dig into these and, and get some people out yes. here in Washington. You know, at some level, I'm I'm almost sad because uh, we're starting with eight fellows, and so we wouldn't be able to to have twenty, even if even if we could. I mean, it, you know, it's all contingent on funding and things like that. But um, you know, we've just been so gracious and, and and grateful to see all of the interest in what we're doing at every level. You know, people following us on social media. We are uh, Am Moment Org on most social media platforms. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please give us a follow. Um, but yeah, it's just been incredible. I mean, 
you know, at a certain level, you know, we were careful when we were building this organization. We really only talked to people that we had to to get advice and insight and help to build this out. And we didn't know what the reception was going to be when we've launched, but we've been nothing um, but floored by the response we've gotten. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Again, we are iterating uh, on every episode. So please continue to send in feedback, rate and review us on every platform you can, uh, if it's a good review, hopefully. Um, but yeah, no, thank you for, for listening to us. And uh, we're going to go ahead and go over to our guest here. Today, we have uh, a dear friend of Nick and I, uh, a board member of American Moment, Ryan Gerdusky. Uh, he's the author of They're Not Listening, uh, How the Elites Created the Nationalist Populist Revolution. Uh, he's an associate editor at the American Conservative and a co-host of the podcast right now, which I highly recommend all of you listen to. Uh, look, Ryan's a funny guy. He really cuts loose on these things. We got a little bit of champagne in him as well when we were doing this conversation. So we definitely cut loose. Um, I don't even necessarily agree with everything he says, but Ryan has incredible moral clarity and he really doesn't care what it is that you think. So he speaks his mind. We appreciate that. And I don't think that there's any voice uh, on the new right, um, uh, you know, this coalition of populists and nationalists and post-liberals and whatever you want to call it, that speaks with such clarity on immigration as Ryan. And so we had a really good time talking to him. Nick, what did you think of that episode? It was great. Uh, I think Cut Loose is probably, uh, you know, underselling how, <laughs> how relaxed Ryan got in his interview. But uh, no, we, we had a really great time with him. And, and you know, just to echo what Sarab said, um, Ryan really is the gold standard when it comes to, to knowing immigration um, and knowing all the issues surrounding it and not caring about what people have to say about him uh, after he tells the truth. Yeah, I mean, he's just fantastic. It was funny uh, to give you a little bit of a behind the scenes insight. He walked in wearing sunglasses, immediately complaining about his Uber driver. He had a again, we, we always make the same joke with Ryan. You know, he really gives off those those New York values um, as a <laughs> as a Texan wearing cowboy boots right now. We love to rag on him, but but we love Ryan. We think he's fantastic and we think you're really going to enjoy the conversation. Um, and uh, without further ado, we'll go to our guest, Ryan Gerdusky. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, um, I was you're. Told I can't swear. So well, yeah, you gotta keep. keep it... You gotta keep the New York values a little bit toned down <laughs> for this podcast. Our current, uh, you know, yeah. rate well, uh, up in New York City, where we have electricity and, and heat. So well, look, you know, we didn't, we didn't expect. The <laughs> well, we're snow not that living we in third world countries than Texas. Ryan is referencing the snow that happened in Texas recently <laughs> and uh, how unprepared we were in many ways. Um, but uh, yeah, you're you're in town because we have this launch party for American Moment last night and someone had kindly brought us some champagne. So I thought we'd do a toast on the show itself. Hopefully this doesn't break all of the very expensive lights in Don't here. Don't point it at my face. <laughs> there we go. Okay. All right. All right. Look at that. Ryan. Oh, thank, thank you. you for joining us. Look at this Let's champagne out of a plastic cup. It is. That's a, right. And it's from May well, of we, last year. We, so we can't trust New Yorkers with delicate glassware. Yeah. That's what it comes down to, really. Yeah. Um, And we have a copy of Ryan's book here on the uh, desk right now. You know, that's actually the copy that Ryan signed for me uh, a couple of months ago, long before we launched American Moment. And uh, there's some very rude comments that he signed in there <laughs> that I cannot say on what we're trying to make a very family-friendly podcast. However, um, 
I can say that you do reference American Moment. And Ryan, you've been with us from the beginning, and we're so grateful for all the help. Yeah, cheers. Cheers to you guys launching. Yeah. And Thank you. Cheers. Yeah. We wanted to have you on because at the end of the day, you're one of the top people out there talking about all the issues that is that we care about, whether it's immigration, ending foreign wars, being heterodox and interesting on economics to actually support families, uh, and actually fighting on substantive questions as opposed to just, you know, uh, I support this politician or, or another. Um, you know, first of all, just want to get a little bit of background. How did you get involved in politics? What was the path that got you here? Because it's a bit non-traditional. It's the sort of thing that we're interested in at American Moment, having more people. Yeah, I didn't have any interest in I didn't I had any interest in politics. I wasn't down the road where I would work in politics. My aunt uh, Susie was best friends with a, a local city councilman, uh, councilwoman whose PR guy killed himself in the office. And my aunt said, it's terrible. You should hire my nephew. And I got the job. And I did her <laughs> PR. And I was her PR person for a year. And then I worked for the state senate. And then I worked for Bloomberg's third term reelection campaign. And uh, it was just job, follow job, follow job. It wasn't I was wanted to do it. I just was good at it. And it's how. And then eventually, when I was like 26, after working on campaigns for seven years, I noticed that most people who wrote about it had no idea what they were writing about. So I just blind pitched myself to the Washington Examiner and said, hey, I do this for a living. Why don't I write about it? Because no one writes about it, knows anything about it. And they hired me and I was at Red Alert Politics and we made it the, a hugely successful website when I was there. Um, it's now folded after I left, but it was very successful. I think it was more successful than we had a staff of four. And I think we had more hits at one point than the Weekly Standard, who had like a staff of 50, which is not a, a not a big peak. But nonetheless, we were beating them all. I out. remember being radicalized by Red Alert Politics well, when I was in college. <laughs> well, anyway, that, I, so I, was, I was there and I was their number one writer. And then I left there to do both writing and and consulting, which is like a mixed bag. And uh, now I do both. And. It's not that interesting of a story, but it's just not <laughs> like I didn't go to college and think, oh, yeah. maybe I'll run the world one day. It was like <laughs> someone killed themselves. You want a job? I'm like, all right, I'll take it. So and that's generally how it's been ever since. It's an interesting path. You were like an art history major for I was a little an art bit. Major. Art major. Yeah. yeah. So one question that I want to ask, and I truly don't know this. You know, I've known Ryan for for about a year now and, and big fan of the book, but I don't know actually how it came about. Like, how, how did you end up writing this book? I wrote an article for the American Conservative Magazine basically chronicling national populism from the late 90s to um, 2019. And it was very, like, chronological. So this year this happened. This year that happened. Um, and I said, this could be a book. And then I pitched it to an agent. The agent pushed it to publishers. And one of the publishers wanted it but said, let's make it thematic over chronological. And I think that's why a lot of people kind of didn't want a chronological book. It's hard to sell a history book. So – and that's a better – they did a better idea. So then me and Harlan Hill teamed up to write the book. Um, you know, they're not listening about that. But that's – the article in American Conservative was like, this is a book. And I could actually elaborate on this because so many books could be articles. And I was right. like, no, this can actually be much, much longer than it is. It's eminently readable. I mean, I, I, I've I've sung its praises time and time again. And I think it's – Did your sister finish reading it? I think she's still working on it, oh actually. Yeah, um, uh, she's a senior. so readable. It's been she's a senior in high school, man. She's not really inclined to do much more work than she needs to. Right, right now, now, all the alcohol she's drinking is my book is being used as a as a as a uh, to hold up all her beer bottles. She's in high school. She's drinking definitely no alcohol, well, but um, it's a great book, and it's it's one of the ones that 
I feel like you can give to someone who's not necessarily initiated in this world and they can end up kind of working themselves up into having a working understanding of politics, both internationally and in the United States and how to think about politics in this way. You know, you refer to the nationalist populist revolution in the book. It's on the cover. What are you, the like main issues and themes that you think define that revolution uh, that characterize all the movements across well, the world? Well, the point I wrote, especially making the book, was it's not it's for people who are not political because those are most of my friends. And the book has 750 citations because I wanted it to be really well researched so that way somebody to the point where you know anything that you even knew happened. I just want to make sure there was a citation for it just because people I feel would have just dismissed out of the gate. Um, what are the things that relates all issues, national populism, because it is, it stretches beyond, you know, even the West because everyone kind of refers to Brexit in the United States and Trump. And that's, it's very, much more reaching than that. Um, I think the genuine general theme, uh, and it's been a while since I read the book, but the general theme that I cite in the book is that the demand to, um, have one more sovereignty over your own nation, not to be obliged by international agreements, um, but also uh, to have a politician that really relates to working class people. Everyone from Modi, who promised to m make sure everyone in India had running water, to um, to Chile, which was about trying to um, make the economy more more equitable and and against socialist policies, and also deporting. Um, I think Haitians was a big issue for them. Immigration is an immensely important issue across the entire globe. Um, you have um, you have issues of of sovereignty, as I said. Um, and then an issue of the governing class not really having a relatable relationship with that of the people that they govern. You know, there is a citation in the book. I forget who wrote it. But of the working, the working class, about 51, 52 percent of our country right now, they only represent about 10 percent of city councilmen, 4 percent of state legislatures, 2 percent of congressmen. And I think only a handful of statewide elected in the entire country spend a majority of their life as members of the working class. So, um, and it's not just the United States, it's in the UK too. In the UK, in the 70s, which isn't that long ago, it's 15 years before I was born, um, it was more common to be a fisherman or a miner and then be a member of parliament than it was to um, be a member of a political party and work political parties your whole life. Now, that's, I think there's a handful of fishermen and miners, and it's a lot of people who've done nothing besides work in politics. So that relatability factor, I think, is a, is a huge part of it as well. So that's one thing that I want to ask you about, you know, talking about how our ruling class, um, you know, can't really relate to, to normal people. Um, I'm curious, you know, this book came out last year, uh, you know, while the Trump administration was still in office. Um, I'm curious, like, what what was the reception from you know, the right in general, what was what was the reception from, you know, the administration with as much as you can say? Well, um, I mean, people in the administration were really nice to me. One member of uh, decided to do a book, a book party and a book party, but like a book reading and gave a member copy amount to every person inside um, who worked for him in inside his department in the administration, which was really nice um, for those who read it. Um, the book is not was never meant to be, you know, a 10 million copy New York Times bestseller because it's not one relatable and it's not, you know, if it was like why Joe Biden is going to eat your children, it would have done much better. <laughs> um, but it's it's not I don't Joe know. Biden is the herald of socialism. <laughs> He's going to kill right. you. If it, it wasn't meant to be like, oh, here's like five things that boomers already want to believe and know. Yeah. So um, but of the people who read it, they had a really, really good response to it. I think. 
The only thing I've heard that was negative was that people who are really involved in politics, like up to my level, already kind of knew most of the information. So they were like, oh, whatever. But even then, they learned a lot about the EU and foreign governments they had never heard of before. Um, and because our news is so, one, entertainment-oriented, but two, American-oriented, um, they did not know that Quebec was governed by a national populist party. They had no idea about anything about Modi or Pakistan or um, South America or Colombia. So I think that that or Angola, which I was like bringing up facts about that, which I I just don't think they understood that or knew it. Um, but I think that it's mostly for like red pilling people who like had a slight interest, but weren't all the way there yet. Yeah. Um, you know, the book did come out last year, and we were in a fundamentally sort of different time. Pre-COVID. Right, pre-COVID. The president, uh, President Trump was still in office, and now it's Biden, and, and the right is currently sort of scrambling to figure out the path that it's going to take next. Do you feel like the right seems like it's still going to not listen, or it's going to go back to sort of the pre-Trump era? What do you think the kind of state of the right is right now in terms of being sincere, sincerely you know, passionate about the issues you talk about in this book? Well, it's like not a matter of just the right. It's a matter of how our government works. I mean, we are not even... I think that there are more voices on the right now that are at least aware of working class issues. You have the lieutenant governor of North Carolina, for example, who's totally working class. He kind of really gets it on a base level. His name just literally slipped my mind as I'm talking about him. Um, you can look it up, but I, I don't remember top of the head. I've had him on my show too, on my podcast, and I don't remember. But um, but the um, I think that they're definitely at least willing to say it more rhetorically. The thing that the right just can't give up in America is like this devout obsession towards like free market libertarian economics. But listen, that's even being questioned more. You have Mitt Romney talking about doing direct payments for people who have children. Um, Rubio is certainly and Mike Lee have certainly stepped up a lot about trying to do more for families. And as far as tax credits go, Romney's is a direct payment. Um, you have more people who are critical of international foreign policy. Um, and because Biden has been such a disaster on the border, I think you're going to have more people step up on immigration, too, uh, at least while it's convenient. They haven't. It's a long conversion. I mean, this is not a you know, this is not St. Paul on the road to Damascus. This is going to be a long conversion for a lot of people. So I think that they're kind of getting it here and there. But like I said, like that, the whole thing is like a puzzle and people are picking up pieces and just no one has made the full puzzle yet. That lieutenant governor that you had mentioned, lieutenant governor of North Carolina, his name is Mark Robinson, and you guys did an episode with him on yeah, Right podcast, Now, which yeah. is the podcast. It was fantastic. I highly recommend everyone listen to it. Um, you know, you said that it's going to take a long time for this this sea change to happen on the right. It seems to me, and it's, it's core to why we are working so hard to build this organization, is that there are sort of two, three, four, five paths the right could take right now um, in terms of, of how it chooses to adjust to this moment. What do you think would be the wrong path? What do you think would be the wrong way for, for the right to operate through the Biden administration and then going into 2024? Oh, I mean, Nikki Haley becomes our nominee in 2024. Liz Cheney becomes speaker. And then I look for my passport to Liechtenstein and like have a good day about it. Like it's over. <laughs> Liechtenstein. Liechtenstein. Whatever. I'll have to learn that pronunciation when I move there. But it's like then so. I think we have we, strong immigration we laws. Had they don't good, want They you. probably do. It's probably like one of the country I want to go to. They don't accept foreigners. Uh, <laughs> um, and then I'm screwed all over again. Um, no, it's I mean, that would be like the disaster. That would be the it'd just be the apocalypse. Um, well, how could they take it 
forward in a positive sense. I said this to when I said to when I talked to the administration, everyone in the administration. So there's two things that you should question people on uh, who want to work in the administration. One is um, how does every policy you have affect someone who doesn't have a thousand dollars in the bank? Because that's a lot of people in this country don't have a thousand dollars in the bank. And secondly. If someone wants to work in any department or any kind of thing, and you're going to do this stuff, so this is what I would say to you too. What would that sector of the country look like in 10 years if they controlled it for 10 years? Like they had absolute control, you know, they didn't have to worry. What would it look like differently now than it does, does presently? Because um, I know what like AOC's future is. I know what Bernie Sanders' future is. It's it's spelled out beautifully, and they beautifully for them and their supporters. And they, um, it, yeah, they have some like you know expressions like justice or equality or equity, like big words that they use to say they're an excited base. But it's very descriptive. The right like just runs to like buzzwords left and right, America, uh, freedom, liberty. I mean. Words that just are so general that they don't actually mean anything to anybody. They're, you know, uh, American exceptionalism. Just they just don't mean anything um, to to. Or they mean every a different thing to every person. So it's not actually a, a real description of how the country is going to look. And to help really working class people in this country, it's going to take somebody with an or a lot of people actually with an actual thought. You know, how, like if if let's say Trump had a different administration and let's play pretend for a second and, you know, have a good daydream. But um, but let's say he's when he walked into office, he said, how do I help people in the pivot counties that flipped from Obama to Trump? How do I help Mahoning County, Ohio, Ohio? How do I help Erie County, Pennsylvania? How do I help um, Macomb County, Michigan? How do I do something different for these places? And um that doesn't come with just a tax cut. That doesn't come with just an infrastructure bill. Let's say even he said, I want to make sure all these um, we're in COVID right now. And the nationalist thing would be, oh, we need to make everything possible in America that we could possibly make in America. That would be the good, acceptable nationalist answer. Um, that's the, That was Orban's answer in Hungary. Um, OK, so it's not just about taking things from China, like, uh, you know, medical supplies um, or ma making masks. It's a matter of how to make sure those industries go to areas that have been destroyed by free trade and by and by normalizing trade relations with China. If we just put massive tariffs and penalties on these companies, they'll go to Arizona, Texas, California, Nevada. I think California made more manufacturing jobs than Ohio did during Trump's four years in office. Um, how do we make sure that they are going to these places? Well, OK, it's going to take a tax cut, a private private partner public uh, public partnership it's going to take an infrastructure program because they're decrepit in many of those areas um it's going to take some kind of education thing it's going to take a lot of work from a lot of different sectors if that's your game plan of how do i help working class people whose communities are literally dying there weren't those people in those in in that position when trump was in office i think that maybe had there been that and maybe had he not spent the last year of his administration trying to solve a cold case involving Joe Scarborough, we'd have a second <laughs> Trump term. Yeah. But <clears throat> that just that never involved. I mean, you know, he instead he had Betsy DeVos trying on designer sunglasses every day. Like what was like you don't have or designer glasses rather not sunglasses, but what there was no major national vision. And I think that that national vision is what's so poorly missing. You know, on that point, I did a. This was while I was in college, you know, so kind of. So like last week. <laughs> <laughs> no, this was uh, this would have been probably around like 2016. Um, I was involved with a uh, 
redacted libertarian group. Uh, and I, I went, they had this, um, like training, basically training young kids, like on how to, how to get involved in politics. Um, and one thing that, that was said at this training has always stuck with me. Uh, they were talking about how, yeah, you know, liberals and people on the left, they, they talk vision and, you know, what we really need to win is just like, facts and logic like we just we just need to give people the numbers and then they'll understand and it's like no actually like like pe people want a vision they want yeah. a dream and they want something to strive toward and you know if the people in charge of this country aren't capable of giving that they're not going to vote for you right if you can't sell someone like me on i mean i can understand like ballpark numbers but if you can't sell someone like me on it how are you going to sell joe schmo how are you going to sell the biggest vote a biggest block of voters which are non-voters which don't feel like they have any reason to go out and vote mm -hmm. i mean we talk about i mean this was the historic huge election there were still i think like 50 million people to 60 million people who didn't vote it's crazy and if you look at the working class they are they vote at the lowest numbers when you talk about people who are not recent immigrants besides recent immigrants of black college educated white and non-college educated white non-college educated white vote at humongously low levels uh the biggest non-college educated white voting blocks in georgia were the two worst turnouts and we would have two republican senators from georgia if they just showed up we'd have trump be president right now if or at least trump in georgia right now if they just showed up but there's very little engagement with the white working class because in this town, a lot of people on the, on the right are genuinely ashamed of the people that support them because they're viewed as ignorant and intolerant. They don't read. They don't go to the right movies and listen to the right music. They don't uh, have the right degrees. It's all very foo-foo nonsense in the city. And they, I think that you don't have that on the left where um, – you where they look at somebody, maybe a person of color, maybe a single mom, maybe somebody with like 45 degrees who doesn't do anything with their life and somehow has a level of compassion for them that we don't have among our own voters for whatever reason. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a heuristic that I've been using lately, which is that people who are in professional politics in Washington, D.C., you can basically break them down into two categories. There's one set on the right that if they went to like a local tea party meeting or a GOP meeting, they'd walk around, they'd have a good time, they'd glad hand, they'd, they'd uh, enjoy talking to the people they were with. And, and they'd, you know, they, they'd have a, they'd have a good time. They'd like them. They'd, they'd even maybe love the people that they were uh, seeing. And then there's the vast majority that would have utter contempt for every single person there and be like, oh, these people are gross. Right. They're, they're, they're conspiracy theorists. They don't understand. They don't have the sophisticated view of policy and politics that I do. And like, Here's the thing. That may be true. They aren't as sophisticated about politics and policy as you are. It's not their job. They are welders or they work in an office or they're raising a family or they're a mom or they're a teacher. It's not their job to, you know, pay attention to every single thing that's being published on an intellectual magazine every week. And that's OK. Right. We still have a responsibility to those people. And so many of the people in this town and, and elsewhere in politics just so, don't seem to get that. So, you know, explain it like someone's a third grader on an issue that I think that you're you're one of the most eloquent people that I know to talk about immigration right. you know the the right for the last 20 to 30 years the only thing they've had to say about immigration if they've had anything to say at all is okay we need to we need to stop illegal immigration we need to have, right. you know, do you verify we need to destroy our wall. country but it has to be done legally well that's right and so <laughs> so make the case why is it that conservatives people on the right patriots in general maybe even liberals should care about legal immigration as a, a, a 
a issue of public policy and, and statecraft. So when people talk about immigration, those who defend it only speak in either the defense of one diversity of food is so great, which it is. I'm not going to lie about that. And secondly, that, uh, you know, GDP goes up because more people are eating at McDonald's. It's so great. We have more workers, especially in lower income areas. And if we just let the whole entire like this is like the Cato crowd, like those morons. If you just let the entire world in, it would be absolutely superior. The number one thing people immigrants bring when they come to this country is themselves. It's not just a simple, you know, numbers game. Um, and there are a lot of problems that come with mass diversity. You have and I cite this in my book, there's been so many studies from across the entire globe on every continent, even among people who are racially the same race, but ethnically different. Um, when they have when they have to live among people that are different social capital plummets, people trust not only people who look differently than them less, they trust people who look the same as them less. And social capital, I think, at the, at the this is at the turn of the t century, so 20 years ago, the place with the lowest social capital was also the most diverse places. It was parts of New York City. It was in Los Angeles County. Um, so social capital depletes. And that's bad for a number of reasons. People are less likely to be involved in um, in nonprofit or or civic activities. People are less involved to um, trust institutions like the police, like um, or or higher authority or the government or whatever. Um, people are less likely to um, be willing to engage civically with each other in, in neighborhood activities because um, they feel socially displaced. It's true in our country. It's true in in um, other countries. You know, I think that I think it was the University of Oxford did a study in just the Congo and different tribes of the Congo, and it was the same results that happened in America among ethnic uh, groups. Um, that's an important part. So it's not racist to say this. It happens among all races, among all ethnicities. It is just a fact of human nature. We become less less inclined to to trust one another. Um, so that's one problem of it. The second problem is, is that we say immigrants like, uh, you know, like it's in a bundle of apples and you have to buy the whole entire bundle. And it's just it's all the same. Immigrants are vastly different. I mean, a Dominican immigrant and a Jamaican immigrant is both from the Caribbean, both, uh, you know, racially black, vastly different numbers of, of welfare use, of small business ownership, of of a single motherhood, of church uh, going, of 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 the wealth that they bring in, college education. I mean, across the board, everything. And so when they say the word immigrant, it's used as a deterrent to say, oh, no, we can't judge anybody because we have to bring in everybody. There is nothing wrong with saying we should have an immigration policy that, one, doesn't destroy our natural resources by making us build ever-growing suburbs in every region of the country because we have to have, you know, Houston the size of Los Angeles County because, you know, there's 1.2 million people in this country legally every year. Secondly, um, uh, we should have them done by merit. We should have it redu reduced. You know, everyone talks about the turn of the 20th century to all these Jewish and Polish and German and, and Italian immigrants come in. But then we had 50 years of basically very few immigrants to no immigrants coming in. Um, and during that 50 year period, we had the World War together. We had um, we had the Civil Rights Act together. We had uh, we had the invention of television, of mass media, the interstate, interstate highway system, all these things, collective things to bring us closer together as citizens. And over that time, groups slowly became to, you know, become more like each other. I say this all the time as an Italian from New York whose family was in the mafia, 
one of the reasons the mafia ended was because three generations after they came to this, or four generations after they came to this country, um, um, Italian Americans were more loyal to the government and to the America, the American nation, than they were to the family. So they started betraying each other, and that was really the downfall of the mafia over time. In the in the turn of the 20th century, when we went to World War One, there was something like 600 or 700 German printed newspapers in this country. When we entered World War One, like 90 percent shuttered changed English almost immediately because they said, "No, we are American. We are at war with Germany. We're going to print German magazines." That would be unthinkable today if. Telemundo was going to say no. If we were to war with Mexico, Telemundo would say no, no, no we're not going to. We're going to change all English. We all need to be on the same page that this is our enemy. They would never do that, and that's that's very problematic. Um, so, for the idea of civic engagement, for the idea of a more unified nation, people have to come together as under one you know umbrella. Even the even our own national, uh, uh, you know. It, uh, from many one that would be i mean that would be deemed racist by the left today and i think that in order to sit there and say that even without the welfare problems even without the gang problems in los angeles county and in southern california that we have between blacks and and, and hispanic immigrants even without every other element just to bring the country together you need to have a reduction of legal immigration you should make it more merit-based you should make it smaller and we need to have a real national vision of 50 years in the future how is somebody everyone says oh i came to this country and i'm as american as a ninth generation you know wisconsin dairy farmer that's just not true like it's just not true how do we bring people together who don't have the same beliefs in government have the same language have the same background I think a part of why the left is advancing so much in this tearing down of history is because AOC does not look at a picture of the founding fathers and see herself represented in it. And it's not just AOC. It's a lot of people in this country. Look at our founding. Look at you know the heroes of our country and genuinely do not see themselves reflected in it. So they have no problem tearing it down. And that's extremely problematic, whether you are you know, a child of, uh, you know, part of the Daughters of the Revolution, or you are a recent immigrant, you should have a national, you know, uh, high opinion of George Washington or of Benjamin Franklin or of Thomas Jefferson, or even the problematic ones like Andrew Jackson. Yeah, it wasn't great, but it wasn't great on everything. But at the same time, you should have this natural um, opinion that, oh, this is still my founding father because I am choosing to come to this country. That will not happen easily. It will take a long time. But it should be part of our national vision. And it cannot happen if we continue to have 1.2 million legal immigrants in this country every year. Yeah, I think that that's all great. You know, priority three in the American moment list of priorities is immigration must be restricted in order to promote. Does that make sense, by the way? It did. Yeah. Okay. Because um, you're both looking at me sometimes like I have four no, heads. So. It, it was great. It was, you know, but, but the way that we frame it is immigration must be restricted in order to promote national solidarity and the economic well-being of all Americans. Yeah, that's true. And and what there's you, a reason why Cesar Chavez, who Joe Biden has a statue of, used to call used to be like one of the biggest voices against illegal immigration in our country. I mean, what he said about immigration, about illegal immigrants would, you know, make people blush what Donald Trump said about illegal immigrants. So um, and he was a he was a workers person. All these people were workers people and they were for the working class. Bernie Sanders in 2016 was for this. I mean, these are not recent things. It's just wokeism. Because if you inherently believe that 
to be white is problematic, which is what people who believe in critical race theory truly believe, then anything you could do to make the country less white and rid itself of any kind of past that is involving white people, which is the entire past, basically, um, you you would seek to do. And, and that is what is moving through our entire system like a freaking cancer. And the only two people who have co-signed mass immigration are donors um, libertarians and uh, and and the woke left, and it, it is the idea of 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 multiplying for the and, and increasing for the sake of increasing is literally the ideology of only those three groups and cancer cells, and they should be treated the same. <laughs> I have to say that like, <clears throat> this is what I've been thinking about for a little while. I legitimately don't think I've ever met like a non politically involved libertarian in my life. Mm-hmm. Like all of them seem to be like hyper activists mm-hmm. who. Um, only post Ron Paul quotes on Twitter, you know, and that's, and that's it. That's, that's all they do. I have never met a normal person that's like, yes, we must have unfettered immigration to like increase the GDP. Like normal people do not believe that. No. I mean, and if you ask normal people, how many immigrants do you think come in this country a year? They can't ask you. So when they say, should we have more or less or about the same people just kind of guess it's like saying like, Oh, how many hairs do I have on my head? Is it like more than a hundred thousand? Is it less than a hundred thousand? I have no freaking clue. Let me just take a guess. That is basically most people's subject understanding of immigration because unless it's a border surge or like a migration problem, a migrant pro- a problem, it's never a story in the, in the mainstream media. We never have an honest conversation of it. Mm-hmm. Honest conversations are like Lindsey Graham, like let's bring in 100 million or like Dick Durbin, no, let's give him 200 million. That's an honest conversation within like in the realms of like the media. On your point about uh, libertarians, you know, our our friend Rachel Bovard and, and board member of American Moment has this distinction she makes between DC libertarians and like folk libertarians. Like if you go to like local Tea Party meetings and like you go to activist groups or you just go out to Republican primary voters, yeah, there's a bunch of them that call themselves libertarians. They don't get really jazzed up about open borders. Very, very few of them do. It's only like a specific <laughs> breed of like political creature bug man that gets yeah. really excited about that stuff and it's just this weird distinct breed and and separating the two i think is important because i think the dc libertarians are really not serving the folk libertarians the well the best moment ever on twitter was when cato had to board up its walls when the rioters were coming <laughs> and that one member of cato was like don't you know our position on prison reform how why would you smash our windows for like yeah oh my God, did you take meth or eat like lead paint? Like you have to be, that they genuinely believe, oh no, if we just have, didn't you hear about Tim Scott wanting to make like uh, that national holiday about that city in Oklahoma, that uh, what, what Juneteenth? Don't you hear that Tim Scott wants to make Juneteenth a national holiday? You should put down your arms and immediately join in with the police. Who, These people are nuts. Who was that? Can we get a name check, I don't know what her name is because okay. I, mean, I laughed about it a good, like a good solid month. Yeah, no, I mean, because again, these DC libertarians, they, they, they promulgate these policy ideas that they never have to deal with the consequences of. So it's like, okay, we're going to release all these people from prison. Okay, we're going to essentially have open borders. Okay. And they're very used to living in kind, gated communities where no one comes to bother them. It's like George Will. George Will lives in a community that looks like the 19. 19- 50s it is 95 percent white it is a average home is five million dollars and the average income is like 600 grand like i mean literally what did william F. buckley used to say that it was you know, a conservative stands in front of a train of history and say stop now they stay on the side of, of the train and say i'm not a racist like let me on board like <laughs> yeah. that's exactly what they are well and that's the biggest problem with like what's happened in minnesota is that there was no plan in place so they dropped these people off and 
in Minneapolis or in St. Paul or or um, in St. Cloud. And they've done it in like small towns as well with like under a thousand people. They'll be like, oh, you know, here's 200 people who like don't speak English. Have fun with that. Yeah. Um, and what happens, uh, particularly in Minneapolis, is that a lot of these people do end up joining gangs. I mean, that's why there were so many people from the state of Minnesota that that try, like literally tried to join ISIS, you know, yeah. that got like pulled off at, planes on at, flights. Look at Sweden. Sweden, for the first time in its history, has a problem of suicide. Uh, uh, sorry, of, uh, of suicide bombers and, and, uh, and car bombs. Sweden has never had a problem with car bombs in its history. And now it is a pandemic in, uh, in, I forget the name, um, Malub, yeah, in, in southern Sweden, where they have all the refugees from Syria. It's a giant, giant crisis in their own country. And they did a study one year, it's in the book, about, you know, gangs and, and, and Europe does a much better job of tracking this than America does, but gangs and, and uh, gang activity. And because it came so overwhelmingly from Middle Eastern re refugees, they stopped doing the sense the study because they were like, oh, we don't want to, you know, perpetrate anything negative. Denmark is like the one country that's really worked. Denmark was a, in 2001, they had their national election two weeks after 9-11 or three weeks after 9-11. And it was the first time in 100 years that right-wing governments came to power, and the Danish People's Party was the very nationalist populist party that came to power. And they always uh, were on the side of the government, but not actually a member of the government for most of the last 20 years. And the government adopted almost all of their policies, so much so that their policy was, we're going to abolish ghettos in our country. We're going to abolish all Muslim ghettos in our country because we're going to make them fully Danish children of Muslim refugees have to go to Danish school to be fully immersed in being Danish. We're going to make them Danish. It's a very difficult task, and they're trying to do in their country. But it was so popular. The left-wing government now has adopted those values. And last year was the first year, I guess, in a long time that they had less immigrants than the year before. And the socialist Danish president said that's a great thing. That would – a right-wing person would never say that in this country – and I'm not saying that that has to be the goal is to have less immigrants than the year before. Uh, but I'm saying is that the goal should be a, a mass immersion of of, of uh, America, an American culture because we are different than the rest of the world. It's not just hot dogs and hamburgers and going to proms. We have a generally unique culture and it is forged because we are different kinds of people in the rest of the world. And if you bring in people from different areas and they flood one area – you will no longer have an American culture. You'll have a culture of whoever just moved that area. It is not racist to say that. It is not as xenophobic to say that. It is not whatever anyone accuses me of saying it. It is the truth. It's just a fact. And you have places in this country that in 20 years went from being 95% American, mostly white or whatever, or even black. Talk about talk about um, Compton, California, the the like the founding area of West Coast hip hop is now super majority Hispanic, Hispanic gangs terrorized black families and black children. In 2016, one Hispanic gang, not only they were they were searching section and housing for um, black families, looking which bedrooms black children slept in, and they started throwing Molotov cocktails in those bedrooms to terrorize black families to leave that area. And they were successful in a complete cleansing of black families in the Compton area and mass immigration on top of it. And Maxine Waters now will be the last black congresswoman from that area that founded West Coast, Coast Hip Hop, a truly American cultural phenomenon. Um, that's 
we're going to lose that. And maybe we'll have something that's different. Maybe it'll be nice, maybe better. But those people were Americans and they should have been looked after and they should have been protected. And we should have. What's the point of having a government if you're not going to look after your own people? I mean, at that point, we just have, might as well have Amazon run our freaking country and we'll just have fast, fast delivery service. And, you know, we'll make sure everything comes from China. We'll you know, all be happy and fat. But if you're going to have a government, they should at least sit there and protect our own people. At least it's a private company, Ryan. I don't know if you've heard. Um, that's that's the standard line that folks tend to say. You know, I, I think that earlier you had described how, you know, it is a, a reasonable task of government and especially the right to look at, you know, when you're restoring manufacturing jobs, it matters where they're going. You know, right. maybe you don't want them going to California. Maybe you should go to the towns that were deindustrialized. Basically, you should you should make choices as, as libertarians would say, you should pick winners and losers right i think on immigration it's basically the same thing is people are so afraid and gun shy about making choices about what has always been like a tool of statecraft by any government going back hundreds and hundreds of years thousands of years and and suddenly we've decided that we simply can't make any choices um as people are making policy in the united states um it's deeply foolish and it has a lot of consequences because people are because two reasons one it's more profitable to be a loser than a winner um especially on the right and secondly no one wants the responsibility of governing and what follows that they don't want to actually have um the responsibility of having to to control a place i mean and and that is literally your – I mean, with the political idealists aside, people like you know myself and people on the left and the libertarians, whatever, 70% or 60% of this country literally only give – whatever, only really care if – you know, the lights are still working, the heat's still working, traffic's moving smoothly, and, uh, you know, the general basic society or uh, the crime isn't rising. The general basics are working for them, and they will gladly vote almost always to reelect a guy who does that or a girl who does that. Um, the right has has given up on even trying to kind of run those campaigns in most major cities, have even tried to give up on running those in many major states, and – um, the places that we're accepted to win are growing smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And even in those areas, they're not willing to actually fight back. I mean, one of the great things that Trump did in the last year of his presidency was end federal contracts with people who do critical race theory. Um, every state should have adopted that. Every state of gov Republican legislatures and all 23 of them, whatever, and Republican governor as well, should have adopted that immediately. And it would have taken care of itself because it's hundreds of millions of dollars of state contracts. They're doing that in West Virginia because of a good friend of mine, Riley Keaton, who's fantastic, who's a state house member. The other states are trying to do that. But like, it's something so simple as that that should be looked at and say, what can we do not only to keep the lights on, to keep you know business moving, to keep the police working, but how do we actually make it better and fight against the what's what's increasingly moving throughout our entire uh, government and yeah. our culture. Yeah, I think it's it's absolutely critical. And the hope is, is that uh, they'll start listening uh, <laughs> to, to riff on the title of your book. You know, immigration is just one of those issues that I think the right has to be responsible on and it has to be responsive on. Otherwise, it's not doing right by its voters. It's not doing right by some of the other side's voters as well. You know, immigration, um, the consequences of, of, a, of a badly run immigration regime cross partisan boundaries. They cross ethnic boundaries. They cross every sort of boundary. And, you know, it's funny, a, a New York Italian who probably 
probably traces back his ancestry in the United States, what, three generations at max? Mayflower, but well, nice try. Depends on which side. <laughs> my dad's side's English yeah. and Irish, so nice try. Yeah, yeah. My, but, but my mom's side, uh, <laughs> since 1880. Yeah, that's right. And, like, you know, I, I'm i a naturalized citizen of the United States, and it's clear that this doesn't have to be a, an issue that divides people based on race or ethnicity or whatever. It just is a simple fact of governing that you have to have a reasonable policy on immigration um thank you for for being strong on it i know a lot of people look up to you to to, to no provide they clarity they do well, not one to be fair, no one... a lot of people fight with you online too. <laughs> <laughs> they do both yeah. most people can't stand yeah. me they think i'm an yeah. arrogant new yorker but yeah. that's fine too but yeah. whatever yeah well this is this is the this is the thing you and i argue most about is that people actually do look up to you and you should come to terms with yeah, that and that, act accordingly. that's also not true but it's fine <laughs> um thank you for coming on the podcast ryan thank you for all the advice you've given us over the yeah. uh years as we've built american moment and um you know a really good organization i really believe you guys i think it's gonna be a really good organization I mean, that, that that means a lot to us and it, it was it was funny at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic uh we would do these these zoom conversations with you know the 10 of us or so and there were particular conversations that went to like two in the morning that ended up seeding like my brain to have the idea for this and and i'm convinced so that... you're gonna give me credit for this entire Absolutely. organization <laughs> At least true. part of it. At least part of it. Um, That's also not true. But no, you guys put in all the good work. You and Nick and Jake are really, really, really the best will do this. It's essential that this gets up and running. I don't care what anyone says. There are a million think tanks in this town, 95% of them worthless. I think this would be a genuine thing that's not worthless. And so many organizations on the right are just training people on the right to be pundits or to like make a better argument. It's not to actually go out and do something positive. And the people who will ultimately help this country immensely are the ones whose names will never be known. And they'll just be a staffer at senator's office or at government offices or whatnot, or the next president's administration who will do the important thing. So an organization like this is essential. It's so, so important. Had this organization started 10 years ago before Trump was in president, he would be president again today. So I, I really, really, really think this is that important. It's quite the endorsement from board member Ryan Grunowski. <laughs> yeah we're gonna, we're gonna boost that up on socials um, yeah. thank you Ryan for joining me thank you guys After we have our guests on every week, we like to dive into a couple of the pieces on AmCanon. Now, again, it's it's a branded term, and so we're going to walk you through a little bit of what that is, and we'll hope that you take a look at it. It's on AmericanMoment.org slash AmCanon. That's A-M-C-A-N-O-N. Uh, what AmCanon is essentially our... You know, it's a conservative canon. It's it's a streaming service. It's this weird hybrid. There's there's really nothing else like it. And what we've done is we've taken all of the major topics that we really care about, things like immigration, economics, family and culture, history and philosophy, power and politics, and we've created these multimedia 
playlist, essentially, for you to walk through, to read through, to listen through, and understand politics the way that we do. I think there's over 150 pieces on it right now. But, you know, going in theme with our episode with Ryan, we wanted to dive in today and talk a little bit about two pieces that each of us appreciate on the immigration section specifically. Now, again, this is the sort of thing you won't see a lot of other organizations doing. Most organizations try to focus on books and essays, and that's great. But, you know, as Zoomers, we recognize that visual media are a lot of how people tend to digest and understand politics. And so the element of AmCanon that I wanted to highlight today is actually something that I remember watching at the time it was published. Back in 2016, when I was first getting involved in politics, I remember watching an interview that then-candidate for president Bernie Sanders did with Vox, uh, the liberal news outlet. And he talks about how open borders is not something that he supports. Now, look, we have a lot of disagreements with Bernie Sanders here at American Moment, but his appreciation for the interests of the working class and his advocacy for them, even though we feel like it is, it is atrophied over time, is something to be admired. And so in this exchange, he talks with, with Ezra Klein and talks about how open, border, open borders is a, is a Koch brothers proposal. The Koch brothers being the, the libertarian billionaires that end up funding a lot of left, of, of oh, sorry, Freudian slip there, right wing <laughs> and libertarian causes. And so uh, that's just one of the cool clips we have on there. Nick, what was it that you wanted to talk about on Amcanon today? Yeah, so I wanted to share a book. Uh, I actually read this book uh, while I was waiting for Ryan's to arrive in the mail, uh, it's by Douglas Murray, who uh, some of you might know, he's written a lot of books about um, immigration, and it's called The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, and Islam. Um, and basically what Douglas walks through in this book um, is the kind of multiculturalism crisis that is that has stricken Europe, uh, especially during this refugee crisis from the Middle East, um, as well as the the U-turn um, that you know the the ruling elites like uh, Angela Merkel and 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 others in Europe um, have had after seeing the negative effects um, of unfettered immigration uh, to the European Union. Um, really love this book. It, it's you know similar to Ryan's. A lot of great sources, um, talks through a lot of current events that, you know, most Americans, I don't think, would would have knowledge of uh, in European politics and and how it's affected normal European people. Um, so highly recommend this book, highly recommend Ryan's book as well. And if you would like to purchase um, any books that, that, you know, we talk about on this podcast, we have a, a bookshop now. Uh, so the link for that is bookshop.org slash shop slash American moment. And on that site, uh, basically what it does to give you the rundown um, is that when you buy a book, you buy it from a local bookseller. So uh, instead of supporting evil Jeff Bezos and buying from Amazon in his quest to, you know, shut down all bookstores ever, um, you should you should really buy from this bookshop uh, and support local bookstores. Yeah. And we also get a small cut at American Moment as well, but it's nominal and you're really helping important small businesses succeed in a time when things are really hard for them. Look, most independent bookstores are basically run by communists. There is no real political alignment there. But at American Moment, we believe that small business, independent family owned businesses need to continue to exist. You know, I think that that's a great pick that you had, Nick, you know, the strange death of Europe. And, and it just it, it reminds me how 
sober we need to be when we're talking about these issues. You know, there's a lot of figures on the American right and elsewhere that are really nasty about immigration. You know, they, they have really weird beliefs and, you know, that frankly, they can be, uh, you know, fairly distasteful sometime. Our approach with immigration is, is a lot more sober. It's just a recognition that this is a tool of policy, that this is something that nations do or don't in accordance with their national interests. And that goes to everything that American moment wants to fight for. Again, we frame it in our mission statement as strong families, a sovereign nation, and prosperity for all. And immigration is a factor that touches every single one of those. And it's so important that we focus on it, focusing on issues like that and other underserved issues on the American right and in politics more generally is what we're trying to do at American Moment and at Moment of Truth. Um, Thank you for listening to our podcast today. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. Again, please send us as, as much feedback as you can. Go to AmericanMoment.org and see all the rest we have cooking. Please follow us on social media. And once again, thank you for listening and joining us as we try to build this out and, and hopefully build something great.